Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In September, we were joined for a live stream event by two highly influential figures on the subject of race and racism. Psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum, author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And Robin D'Angelo, author of the international bestseller White Fragility and a new book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. Robin and Beverly were in conversation with Hannah McInnes. Beverly, if we begin with you, could you tell us about the premise of why all the black kids are sitting together in the cafeteria? And perhaps most importantly, why you decided to bring out a new edition 20 years or or more than 20 years after initially writing it? Sure. Well, let me start off by saying that I had the privilege of serving as president of Spelman College for 13 years, from 2002 to 2015. And when I was thinking about retiring from that role, I was approached by my publisher to consider doing a 20th anniversary edition for the 2017 release. And I thought it was a great idea because having spent, you know, the first decade and a half of the 21st century with young people who weren't yet even born at the time that my the first version of my book came out, I really wanted to reflect on how they experienced race and racism in their generation. What were the issues that they were thinking about as young people, let's say born in 1997, coming of age in the 21st century. But when people hear the title of my book, they often think that it's about that question, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And of course I do address it from the point of view of understanding racial identity development and how we come to understand ourselves in the context of a race conscious society and how that impacts how we engage with one another. But I like to think of the book as really answering three questions. What, so what, and now what? What is racism? How do we understand it? Not just as individual acts of meanness, but really as a system, a system of advantage based on race. So what does that mean in terms of how we think about ourselves and other people, particularly as young people are coming of age, thinking about what it means to recognize yourself as African-American or as Black in the context of anti-Black racism? What does that mean as a Latinx person or an Asian-American person or a white person? Right in the context of the United States, but I think that struggle with understanding your positionality vis-a-vis that system is in the context of white supremacy is the so what. And then the now what is what can we do about it? How can we empower ourselves and other people to speak out against racism, to break the silence about it, to change it? 
Robin, I was going to ask you to outline your book, but one of the things I wanted to pick up on almost instantly in what um, we just heard from Beverly is this idea that the complication with racism, in a sense, is when people see it as cruel and intentional. And then when you start to say that it is a problem and we are all involved in it, people turn away and they feel defensive and offended. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on why that is something that you know most needs to be overcome. And do we still use the term racism in that circumstance? Uh, and I'm thrilled to be with you all and uh, always an honor to be in conversation with Beverly. Uh, the subtitle of, of the book, White Fragility, is why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. There are several reasons, but I think a foundational reason is what we think that means, right? That we have been taught to think about racism in very simple terms, and, and Beverly um, identified them as uh, intentional acts of meanness. And I don't know that you could have come up with a more effective way to protect the system of racism or the system of, of advantage based on race than that definition, uh, because it pretty much exempts most white people from the system we live in, right? If it's intentional acts of meanness, well, then I don't do those. And at the same time, at this point in my work, I'm very clear that I have perpetrated racial harm. And I'm also clear that not once was it intentional uh, or even conscious. It's still wounded. It still had an impact. So that idea is going to keep us from examining and changing that wounding, that impact uh, from, from challenging that system. It also pretty much guarantees defensiveness, <laughs> you know, it, it becomes then an issue of moral character rather than an inevitable result of the society we're born into, which really, I, I don't feel guilty about having been socialized into a uh, racist worldview, <laughs> but I am at this point now responsible for the outcome of that. And one of the things I appreciate so much about Beverly's work and why I have used it for years in my teaching is she starts with an understanding of socialization and culture. Um, most white people can't answer the question, what does it mean to be white? And, and I, if I can't answer that question, I can't even begin to engage in these conversations. So we kind of have to step back and scaffold a little bit and begin with what is culture? <laughs> you know, what is socialization? Uh, why is it inevitable that I have been influenced by these messages, regardless of whether I would have chosen that? Um, so those are some of the reasons I think it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. Beverly, just a, a great importance that you write about all the way through your book of identity. And until we can grasp our identity and have a better understanding of that, we're really going nowhere. Well, I think that I, I want to piggyback on something that Robin just said, which has to do with understanding whiteness. You know, I was a professor of psychology for many years before I became a college president and when I was teaching, most of my students were white. I was working in a predominantly white institution. And a lot of those students, when I asked them to describe themselves in terms of their race or ethnicity, would struggle with finding an adequate description because they weren't used to thinking of themselves in those terms. I remember one student who said, I'm just normal, right? And what she meant by that is, I'm just like the people I grew up around. I grew up in a homogeneous community. Everybody was white around me. I didn't think of myself as having a particular racial or ethnic identity. On the other hand, young people of color become aware very early on, even if they're living in 
BIPOC communities, even if they're living around other people of color, they understand themselves as being perceived as other, even at a very young age, in part because of the TV they watch, the stories they read. Do they see themselves reflected in their books? Do they see themselves in the toys? You know, what kinds of dolls are they being given? All of those kinds of um, experiences start to help, or maybe I shouldn't use the verb help, but require young people of color to understand themselves as being a person of color, that that has meaning. And that understanding deepens as they get older, as they get more able to process information, and as the world responds to them differently. I often say that you know, people respond to a seven-year-old black boy very differently than they respond to a 17-year-old black boy, right? A young man of 17 might be perceived as threatening. That same young man, when he was seven, might be perceived as cute. So the feedback that young people are getting changes, and as that changes, their sense of identity shifts. Coming to terms with that is a process that all of us need to experience. Some people have to experience it. Other people can avoid it depending on their social context. Yeah. Okay. Can I add on to that? (laughs) Um, White people, I'm going to talk in collective terms now, generally think about a black people as being too sensitive about race. I'm sure many of us have heard that, right? Or they're irrational about race. And I actually think white people are irrational about race. I think we're the most emotional. I think we have the most investments in the status quo. And another piece that engenders that irrationality, that emotionality, that certainty that our opinions are informed, even when we can't even answer the question of our own whiteness, is that on one level, we really do know. So while we don't describe ourselves in racial terms, The research is clear that at a very early age, as early as three to four, pretty much everyone knows it's better to be white. We all get that message. Now, the impact of that message is different based on if you are or are not white, but we're all getting it. And at the same time, for white people, we're taught not to think about ourselves in racial terms. We have a lot of taboos about race. And so on one level, we really don't know, right? You know, I'm sure you've talked to a white person who's like, oh, my goodness, I have never thought about this before. So it's true. We really don't know. And we really do know. We know right? We talk about it amongst ourselves. We say things that to each other we wouldn't say in front of other people. If you ask a room full of white people, would you, um, if you had the opportunity, would you want to be black? (laughs) Very, very quickly, you can predict they'll say absolutely not. But it's taboo for us to admit we know. So when you put that together, (laughs) this it it seems like they couldn't both be there, but they are. We really don't know. And we really do know, but can't admit it. And it makes us really irrational. <laughs> I think that's part of white identity. Can I ask you about uh, your, your, your book and this term, nice racism, which obviously takes the themes forward from white fragility, which was an essay I think you published in 2011 first. Many will know it became a huge international sensation. What is then, and you've alluded to it already, nice racism, you know, and how does that move forward from the themes of your original book? If we think about racism on a continuum, now, unfortunately, we're thought to think of it as a binary, racist or not racist. 
bad or good, either or. I'm racist or I'm not racist. And if I'm racist, I'm bad. And if I'm not racist, I'm good. That's that's how I was taught to think about it. And of course, since I was on the not racist side, it wasn't my problem. <laughs> uh, if we think about it as a continuum, then the far end would be the obvious. The things that most people can identify, the N-word, a slur, a hate crime, a shooting, and so forth. But what's on the other end of that continuum? The more subtle, I'm going to put air quotes, because subtle to the perpetrator, not always so subtle to the recipient, but that the nicer forms, the, the forms that are done with a smile on your face, but we still are managing to undermine you. And that those more subtle or nicer forms are harder to get your hands on. Uh, they're easier to deny and they lead to a lot of gaslighting. I think they're actually can be more debilitating to people of color because they're harder to admit to for, from the perpetrator. And so you're left just wondering, is this me? Well, society's telling you, yes, that's just you. <laughs> that didn't really happen. So th those are the nicer forms of racism. And just to give an example, I think not being able to answer the question, what does it mean to be white, is a subtle, nicer form of racism. It has a consequence. It has a racist impact, intentional or not. It all contributes to a society in which structural racism is held in place. I have to say that I had the opportunity to read uh, Robin's book pre-publication, and I gave a quote about it, an endorsement, which is on the cover of the jacket. I was proud to see it there. Um, but I mentioned that to say one of the things that really struck me about nice racism, and this was true for white fragility as well, but particularly nice racism, is how clearly Robin has described patterns of discourse, patterns of behavior that emerge when you're asking leading workshops or asking people to engage in these conversations, white people in particular, to engage in these conversations. And, you know, in my circle of friends, I have a number of colleagues who do that, you know, who facilitate these conversations as professionals. And anyone who has done this work for an extended period of time will instantly recognize the patterns that Robin describes. So I just want to give a shout out for how accurately I thought she had captured those patterns of behavior. But, you know, one of the things that she just said about, you know, the irrationality about knowing, but claiming not to know is a pattern that I observe. And it has to do with something I often do at the beginning of my presentations. And that is to ask an audience Perhaps if we were all in the same space, those who are tuning into How To Academy could in their own comfort at home, think about their own earliest race-related memory. And I find that regardless of race or ethnicity, everybody has one. Almost everyone will say, yes, it doesn't take long, maybe a few seconds before they will raise their hands and say, yes, I've thought of an early memory. And if you ask people how old they are at the time of the memory, There'll be a wide range. I've heard as young as three. I've heard as old as 35, depending on where people grew up and what their awareness is. But for most people, it's usually around the time of starting school, five or six or seven. And if you ask what emotion is attached to this early experience, people will say things like confusion, fear, sadness, embarrassment, shame, guilt 
sometimes they say, you know, love or friendship, if it has to do with a particular relationship. But most of the time, it's an uncomfortable feeling. And then if you ask, okay, so you were five or six, you still remember this decades later, you still remember the emotion attached to it. Did you have a conversation with anyone about it at the time that it occurred? Most people, again, more often white people, but people of color too sometimes, but certainly most of the white people will say, no, I did not. But if you are familiar with five and six-year-olds, you'll know that they're pretty chatty. You know, they don't filter much. They kind of blurt out stuff, you know, including family secrets. Um, And so it is counterintuitive that so many adults have this early memory that they recall vividly and yet never discussed it with anyone. And of course, it speaks to the fact that they learn early that they're supposed to not talk about it, right? They learn that early. And it's not like a one and done lesson. It gets repeated. But having said that, I think it does speak to this point that Robin was making about, on the one hand, people say they don't know, but on the other hand, they do know and knew when they were five or six. You know, they could see that something was not right. Something was happening that was confusing, embarrassing, uh, shame-inducing perhaps, or, you know, some other uncomfortable feeling. And yet repeatedly, they've been encouraged not to talk about it. And at the end of the day, I think we would all agree, you can't solve a problem without talking about it. You quote James Baldwin in the book, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be um, faced until it is changed. I think I've got that the wrong way around. Nothing can be changed until it is faced. And obviously to you both, just the very essence of talking about this subject is right at the pinnacle in terms of importance. I mean, Robin, you, you say that you were very interested in this sort of interpersonal dynamics that flow from individual impact and, and to, to the institutional. So I, I feel that you're saying that actually talking about it, having these conversations is the first thing that needs to happen before systematic change, before institutional change. And in fact, you both of you bring up the Brown versus the Board of Education to sort of explain how that is so, the 1954. And I wonder if we could start with Robin and and Beverly. I'm sure you'll want to interject. And of course, I want to um, say something that what, what, uh, about what Beverly had just said. And um, I just want to add another uh, level of knowing, which is at the unconscious level. And while if you asked a group of white people, they may say 7, 10, 25, that's when we're consciously aware or remembering. Mm-hmm. But if you yes. watch Disney movies, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're a little girl watching Frozen, you are internalizing a message about ideal beauty, for example, that you may not articulate racially, but it is a racialized message. Uh, Disney films often, particularly ones I grew up with, depicted uh, people of color in very problematic ways. If you go to the grocery store and you see Aunt Jemima pancake syrup and Uncle Ben's rice, you're seeing images. They're surrounding um, us really very, 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 very early. This is part of the work of uncovering our socialization, right? Yes, I I ask those who think that the answer to racism is not to talk about racism, (laughs) that, that talking about it makes it worse, to think about any other social ill that we would say the best approach to that is to never speak of it. So suicide, mm -mm. depression, 
Nope. Sexual assault, eating disorders. I mean, we, we know now that we have to talk about those things. And yes, I believe that's the first step. But if we're only talking about it, then it's functionally meaningless, right? That, that talking about and that reflecting on needs to lead to different ways of being and acting in the world. There's an exercise that maybe, maybe Beverly can relate to that's often done in a class or a discussion where to close out, you move around the room and you ask each person, what's one thing you're going to do different, you know, as a result of this day or this workshop? And so typical white people will say, I'm going to continue to reflect on this. And I finally began to respond with, and how will people of color know that you've continued to reflect on this? Because if it doesn't lead to a different way of being in the world, then it's meaningless. But of course, it's got to start there. And Beverly, did you did you want to pick up on that again, um, nodding at what Robin says? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, to go back to your quote, you know, the starting from this conversation, it's so important. It's, it comes before and is just as utterly essential to more wider institutional change that's brought about by our political leaders. Well, yes, but I do think it's important. And I think, uh, so I want to underscore what Robin said about, it's not just about conversation. It's about conversation leading to action. Yeah. So, you know, I talk a lot in my book about the importance of dialogue, but the value of dialogue is that it deepens one's understanding that then leads to action, right? You know, that when uh, cross-racial dialogue, for example, has been effective, what you find is that people then are willing to work with each other or sometimes on their own, but to take action. So it's not, you know, I have been writing about um, dialogue and the importance of this for a long time. And sometimes people will say, you know, talk is cheap. I wrote an essay a long time ago that said, talk is not that cheap. It's hard to do. It requires you to push past your socialization that has taught you to be silent. It requires you to take some risks, to be courageous, but it's not for the end of having a good conversation. It's for the end of understanding an issue better that then you can take appropriate action to address. If I could connect that to, I think the original piece of your question was how we both use the example of Brown versus Board of Education. Um, Because again, this underscores what Beverly just said, is you can legislate structurally people's behavior and you can legislate law change. But if you haven't addressed the consciousness, the feelings, the resentments, those changes won't happen. In the United States, we legislated school integration. And in 2021, our schools are almost back to pre-Board of Education levels of segregation because we didn't address the underlying issues that lead to segregation. One of the key issues is that essentially these discussions, and you both bring this up, in fact, Beverly, you you say meritocracy, Robin, you say individualism, ultimately they come from a very similar place. And these cultural narratives, which we find, I think, all over the West, perhaps most strongly in the US, given the constitution, the narrative of individualism, of meritocracy is so strong and that um, really sort of goes against and doesn't doesn't help this conversation along at all. Robin, you say, in fact, individualism is pernicious. And, and Beverly, if I might quote 
this um, idea that you say most Americans have internalized and espoused cultural values of fairness and justice for all at the same time that they've been breathing the smog of racial biases and stereotypes pervading popular culture. It leaves many whites feeling uneasy and uncomfortable and even perhaps fearful in the presence of black people, often without their conscious awareness of those feelings. There's a lot in there, but also in there is this idea that the very values that they white people want to sort of say that they stand for don't go alongside this, cause them to feel uneasy when they're faced with, with this discourse. Yes, well, there's a term that psychologists use called aversive racism. And what it speaks to is this idea that there is a desire to both avoid the other, right? For white people to avoid black people because they're uncomfortable, unfamiliar with, uncomfortable, uneasy around. And so in some ways it's easier to avoid than confront that discomfort. But at the same time, they want to think of themselves as open-minded and fair-minded, equity, you know, conscious of wanting to support equity. So certainly not wanting to think of oneself as discriminatory or engaging in racist behavior. So there's a desire to avoid anything that might suggest that as well. So I got to avoid the conversation. I have to avoid the people. You know, it's in order to preserve that sense of oneself as, in Robin's terms, a good person, right? You know, a good person doesn't discriminate, but a good person I am a good person, but I don't like being in the company of people who make me uncomfortable. Therefore, I avoid those people. And also I avoid conversations that make me feel as though I might be labeled racist. So that notion of aversive racism is really about avoiding the uncomfortable in a lot of ways. The idea that we live in a meritocracy is certainly embedded in American cultures. I I don't think it's just American culture, but certainly in the U.S., this idea that, you know, if you work hard, try hard, you're going to get what you deserve. The belief in a just world is is another concept that psychologists write about. You know, a lot of people believe in a just world, but in fact, if we recognize the existence of systems that systematically advantage one group over another, um, not just in terms of racism, but gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, physical ability, other kinds of isms. If we think about the ways in which those isms can intersect in one person's life, it can be the difference between receiving the benefit of the doubt in an interview and not. It can be the difference between being referred for another mammogram or not. It can be the difference between being stopped and getting a a ticket from a police officer or being shot. Those perceptions that shape our daily interactions influence the outcomes of what we do, sometimes to our benefit, sometimes not. And particularly if you're a person of color, more often not. So this notion that what you do is determined just by your own individual effort and not by the social context in which you're operating is really a commonly held notion, but one that really is quite inaccurate. And people struggle with that because it's such a deeply internalized belief. I'm sure you want to take that on, Robin. I mean, as I said, you describe individualism. There's a, there's a chapter in which Sue and Bob, who appear, um, who, who want to sort of use this idea that we should individualism prevails as a good thing and, and we should talk about that. 
and you say actually individualism in this circumstance is is use the word pernicious Yes, exactly. I mean, okay, on some level, of course, we are all individuals. We are all special and unique and different. And we are also members of socialized groups. We live in a shared culture. We receive the same messages. There is no human objectivity. I make sense of the world through the meaning-making framework that I've been conditioned to make sense of the world through right? It is a cultural framework. So I repeat, we're swimming in the same water. I think it's very easy for us to see this around gender. I don't think anyone would argue that at the moment of birth, when it is declared boy or girl, the trajectory of your life uh, is going to go in a particular direction. Uh, Even the color of the blanket they're going to put you in is going to be dictated by that assignment, that social grouping. You can disagree with it, you can resist it, but you'll have to resist it because you cannot avoid it. You cannot be influenced by it, right? And it is similar with race. So to insist in in a conversation about racism, so let me just repeat that. In general, sure, fine, we're individuals. But when we make that move in a conversation about racism, that functions to deny the reality, one, of social conditioning, uh, but two, structural racism. So as Ibram X. Kendi says, um, by every measure across every institution, um, it's not just him that says this, the the research is very clear, uh, white people overall are at the top and black people are at the bottom. And there's just two overall ways to explain that. White people are just superior. (laughs) Black people are just inferior or systemic racism. If you are not going to use systemic racism to understand that, you are using a racist framework. So using individualism in the context of trying to understand racial inequality functions to uphold racism. It, it, It is a denial that these things make a difference. And, and let me add, because I know all I can hear all the yeah buts out there. <laughs> I am not saying white people don't work hard. I am not saying white people don't suffer, but we don't suffer from racism. Our efforts, right, when we're moving our arms, we are working hard, but we're not facing the barrier and the resistance of racism while other people are. And so our efforts are going to pay off differently. Right. It's it's like swimming with a current versus swimming against the current. There are currents I swim against. Racism isn't one of them. And it not swimming against that current has helped me navigate the currents that I do swim against, such as sexism. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
things that you both talk about are microaggressions and Robin, you describe white moves. Um, generally to describe the things that aren't cruel and intentional, but are perhaps almost worse in the sense of the things that uh, white people do often unknowingly in conversation. Beverly, perhaps you could start with some of this idea of these microaggressions that we, we aren't aware that we're doing, but that are um, you know, as important as, as intentional cruelty. Let's just talk about the term microaggression. You know, it's defined as a small slight, something that is um, usually not intentional, but um, something that, that is hurtful, maybe comments, or I'm going to use as an example, someone commenting on how well you speak. Oh, you're so articulate. That's something that many Black people will tell you about. I've certainly experienced that. The person who says it intends it to be a compliment. The person who hears it, hears a, a sense of low expectation. Well, you know, what was it that I said that made you think it was so exceptional? You know, the idea that I could link two sentences together, you know, what was your expectation? The, the assumption embedded in the statement reveals itself. And if it is something that you've heard a lot, and many Black people will tell you they've heard that a lot, it becomes tiresome and we could call it a microaggression. You know, does it ruin your day? Probably not. But there are other kinds of things, maybe going to the store and not being waited on right away when someone else comes in after you. Maybe being asked for an ID when no one else is being asked for an ID. Maybe it's assumptions about, you know, your role. You walk in, you're the employer and you walk in with an employee and the person the white person, the employee is assumed to be the boss. You know, these kinds of things happen. And if they're happening a lot, it's a death by a thousand cuts. What we know about microaggressions is that they contribute to things like high blood pressure. They contribute to, you know, a sense of well-being. They can lead one to feel depressed and disaffected in their workplace, which is often where they occur. Things like that, they add up. So even though we call them micro, it's important to say that they're not inconsequential because they can be cumulative and they're unpredictable. You can't prepare on a daily basis to say, oh, well, I guess I'll get ready for today's microaggression because you don't know when it's coming or from whom. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, there is a wear and tear on the psyche that is a result of such things. Robin, how does microaggression differ from, or would you say the same things as what you go on to describe as, as the moves of white progressive, things like objectifying and credentialism? Yeah, so I call a move. I mean, in any given moment, we have a choice of how to engage. Um, and when it comes to race, white people need to be thinking um, thoughtfully and strategically, you know, hold their awareness that they're within a context and a structure, um, that there is a power dynamic. It can be subtle, but that, that all of that is present and be thoughtful about how they engage or the things they say and be open to receiving feedback that even though I, I didn't mean to offend you when I said you were articulate, I hear that I have and I, I care to know and understand that. And, and for anybody listening who's wondering still why that would not be a compliment, I just I don't know that I've ever heard anybody marvel uh, over how a white man is articulate. 
Right? I mean, there, there are certain things we just reserve for people who we don't, at an unconscious level, expect that from. So you opened by asking, you know, what, what are some don'ts? And I'll say, here's a big don't. Don't throw people in a room together, white people and people of color to have a dialogue on race when those white people can't even answer the question of their own whiteness. <laughs> um, and that's often what a lot of organizations do. Let's just have a talk. And so many microaggressions happen in those rooms and people of color are exhausted trying to teach and explain to white people who this is all brand new to. So I think it's a good idea for white people to do some educating of their own first, on their own first. I hope that white fragility had served some of that function so that people are more open and more aware when they do engage with the work and in relationship across race. But one really, really classic move that that I see all the time is the evidence that white people offer up to establish that they are free of all racism. And I'm just going to say right here, it's not, no matter what your evidence is, it's not going to be convincing to anybody who understands systemic racism. I've been working on this for 25 years. I, I have a, I think some credibility here, but if I said to Beverly, boy, I've been doing this for 25 years. I have gotten rid of all my racism. (laughs) She may not say it to me, but I think her eyes might be rolling in her head because that's just not possible. Uh, I'm I'm much more aware, much more sensitive, have much better skills, know how to repair racism. And these are not small things, but I'm not going to be free of the conditioning that's constantly coming back at me. So what, what does some of that evidence look like? Proximity is probably the number one form of evidence white people will give to establish they're free of racism. I'm not racist. I had a black roommate in college. I'm not racist. I've traveled around the world. I'm not racist. I speak several languages. I'm not racist. I was in the Peace Corps. I'm not racist. My child plays on a diverse uh, football team. I'm not racist. You know, I I go to lunch on occasion with Beverly Tatum. Uh, You know, this this is the kind of evidence. I'm not racist. I'm from Canada. Um, (laughs) I've heard it all. And I'm sure you have too, Beverly. And I, I think it might be useful for for white folks to hear like why trying to establish that we're free of racism is actually not useful. I think it's important for people to just acknowledge that they probably are, including all, I mean, all of us. When I talk in my book about breathing smog, right? That the, we live, if you live in a smoggy place, you're going to be a smog breather. Nobody walks around and says, hi, I'm Beverly Tatum, smog breather. But If you are living in a smoggy place, you're breathing the smog because that's the only air available. And it doesn't mean that you like it. It doesn't mean that you want to. It means that you need to think about how can you clean up the air. And so um, when we are talking about the seeds of white supremacy, I'm remembering a conversation I heard with Cornell West where he said, you know, the seeds of white supremacy are within me. And by that, he meant within all of us, right? He as a black man, me as a black woman, we all have to struggle with the impact of racism in some way. So it doesn't make any sense to me. And as Robin has so clearly explained for any white person to say, oh, I don't have any of that. You know, I didn't, I didn't breathe any of that air. I, you know, I've somehow been wearing a gas mask all my life. And so the fact of the matter is that if we recognize 
that we are constantly being exposed to ideas that reinforce the notion of white supremacy. We're constantly being exposed to images that reinforce that idea. We're constantly being exposed to stereotypes, particularly that demean or, or devalue people of color. Then we have to acknowledge that at least some of that might have impacted how we view the world. And I think particularly for white people who have been so surrounded because they are the most racially isolated group in the United States, certainly. By that, I mean most white people live and work and um, go to school with other white people with limited contact with people of color because of persistent segregation, not just in schools, but in neighborhoods. It is very unlikely that you will have escaped. So the question is not, am I? The question is how? You know, what did I do that left you feeling that way? What did I do that I could correct in the future? One of the points Robin makes in her book, I think it's an important one, is that the, and I try to make a similar point in mine, it's not about are you racist or not? It's are you working against racism? Are you trying to interrupt it? Are you um, taking action that will impact uh, in a positive way? the cycle of racism. What are you doing? What are your behaviors? It's not so much about what are you being, it's what are you doing? And are those behaviors helpful or are they hurtful? Yeah, Robin, you got your hand up. I love that. Makes me feel very uh, authoritative. Just before I go to audience questions, mm-hmm. because there are lots coming in. Yes, please. I knew it was coming. There's just two points that I, that I want to make. And um, one is, uh, as Beverly said, we're all breathing in the smog of systemic racism. Another way to say it is the smog of white supremacy, the idea that white people are the human norm and the ideal standard by which other people are measured. But the impact is different. So just in case people are thinking, well, see, they're just as racist as we are. What I would say is they're just as prejudiced as we are. But racism is what happens when one group's collective prejudice is backed with legal authority and institutional control. That transforms it into a system that becomes the default of the society. That is just such a critical understanding for white people to have. Um, And and just, I wanna highlight something that Beverly said because I, I imagine there are white people listening saying, I just never got a message that black people were inferior. And so I wanna offer that I think the most profound message of white superiority is segregation, is that we could live as most of us do, having segregated neighborhoods, schools, and friendship circles. Look at your wedding album, if you're married, and have no sense at all that anything of value is lost or missing. To not get the message that white segregation is problematic. In fact, if we're being honest, we tend to measure the value of a space by its whiteness, right? The whiter it is, the better it will be, the school, the neighborhood, versus the a black space is seen as less valuable. Those are such powerful messages. You just can't miss them. So it's not just going to be somebody standing in front of you saying white people are better and black people are, are not. <laughs> it, it's going to be the power of the very lived experience. I hope that makes sense. (laughs) 
I'm just going to, um, I mean, there's so many things to pick up on, but um, I feel I'm going to ask some of the audience questions that are coming in. How do you address it when someone asserts that anti-racism is, in inverted commas, anything but that? Um, and she's linked to an anti-racist education. Um, I, I can't see what this is. Does that make sense to you or... I think she's referring to a movement out there saying that anti-racism is actually a form of racism and that we shouldn't say that racism exists and that white people are racist and so forth. There have always been those who will work against the efforts of racial justice. You know, the investments in the status quo are deep and powerful. There is a movement afoot in the U.S., literally, there are places in the U.S. where it is now illegal to say racism exists. The forces have always been there. It's a highly adaptive system. Um, I expect that there will be people that deny that racism is real and that anti-racism is the problem. And I, I, you know, I take it with a grain of salt and we keep moving forward. <laughs> Uh, Beverly, I'll put this um, next one to you because I know that you talk about this at the start of the book. They say also, how do you address it when somebody says, as people often say to uh, our, our questioner, and I know that you say that you hear this a lot, racism goes the other way too. Black people can be racist um, against white people. Uh, and our, our listener says, or our, our audience member says that um, she truly struggles with how to answer it when somebody says that. You know, when someone asks me this question, I often try to get them to talk about how they are defining the term racism. You know, if you define racism as prejudice, as, um, you know, if you think of racism as somebody's individual attitude that's based on race, then you could say, I'm prejudiced, you're prejudiced, we all can have prejudices. And Robin was speaking to that just a few moments ago. But if you understand racism as not just individual attitudes, but individual attitudes that are translating into policies, practices, institutionalized systems, that's what I'm talking about and define in my book as a system of advantage based on race. And if you understand that system of advantage based on race as benefiting white people, if you understand that, which I do and try to make that point clear in the book, if you understand that, then I would not use the term racist in that way to apply to people who are targeted by that system. I choose to use it only to describe people who are advantaged by it. But that doesn't mean that people who are the targets of racism cannot have prejudices, as Robin just described. We all can have prejudices. We can all behave badly. And I think that for some people is really this, you know, how can you say this is racist and call me bad, put that in quotes, and say, no, that person can't be bad. We can all behave badly. We can all discriminate. We can all harbor bigoted attitudes. However, in a system that's built on assumptions of white supremacy, those attitudes don't carry the same weight, don't have the same impact because the system is not supporting them when they are expressed by people of color. That's the difference. Now, I am aware, and uh, your listening audience might also be aware that, um, for example, in Ibram X. Kendi's book, he says anyone who you know is expressing an attitude that is based on 
racial assumptions is behaving in a racist way. He has a very, a, a slightly different definition, which is why it matters which definition you're using, how you answer the question. But I think fundamentally where we all agree, I've heard Robin and uh, Ibram uh, talk to each other and I've had the opportunity to talk to Ibram X. Kendi as well about this. Fundamentally, I think where we all agree is that what is most critical is not how you describe yourself or other people, it's are you working to interrupt the cycle of racism? It's about being anti-racist and you can't be anti-racist without taking constructive action to interrupt that cycle. And it's very important in terms of what, what we can do, what one can do to, to take it forward. Um, I mean, of course, there's no simple solution. It will be pointless and, and, and mad to imagine such a thing. You say so, Robin, but you talk about courage, lifelong commitment and accountability. People can't have a sort of a plaster or an easy solution. But what, are, what is your hope that people who are reading your book will go away to sort of start to do in their daily lives? Um, and um, Beverly articulated it really clearly when she she captured the question I, I would really love to see changed. So right now, when the topic of racism comes up, there's a general approach by white people of am I or am I not racist? Right. So if I'm racist and to if if that's the question, am I racist? The most common answer is going to be no. <laughs> and if the answer is no, then what further action is required of me? No, I'm not racist. If we change the question to how, how might I be racist? What does this conditioning look like made manifest in my life? Um, that's actually a really great way to get to be an individual, right? If I, if I take my particular life story, if I take my particular intersection of my various group identities and I put it all together and say, so what does my racial conditioning look like in my particular life, that's a lifelong journey that we should all be on. If you change the question from if to how, uh, you will be on your way. <laughs> uh, and there are so many wonderful, I mean, this is 2021, so it hasn't come up yet, but I'm sure somewhere in the Q&A box is the question, <laughs> what do I do? I I'm not sure I honestly think it's a sincere question. Um, in 2021, what I would offer back is how have you managed not to know? Seriously, in 2021, when the information's everywhere, when, it, when there are just is this amazing resources out there where you could Google it in a moment and get list upon list of what you could do. Um, so are you really asking, what can I do that's completely comfortable and doesn't really require any risk? <laughs> uh, that I don't think it, that, that there is an answer at this point. I don't think there is anything that's completely comfortable. But it's, all, it's not only uncomfortable. It's the most transformative, fulfilling, amazing journey I could imagine ever being on as a white person. And it has brought depth and, and relationship uh, to me that, that was just inconceivable before I, I began it. So get yourself Layla Sad's Me and White Supremacy Workbook <laughs> uh, and do it every day. Read Resma Menikim's, um My Grandmother's Hands, which has exercises in it. And for anyone who's thinking, well, there, 
Americans and racism is an American problem, and we don't have that here, and they don't know my culture. What I will tell you is I have come to to the UK, uh, and I have heard that from white people, and it's almost always black people uh, who've brought me to the UK <laughs> to ask me to please help them with the white people, because while the culture may be different and the history may be different, the dynamics are the same. So if you want to, if you want to read white fragility articulated for, from the perspective of a British black woman receiving it, you must read uh, Rennie Ito Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Racism. She is from the UK. <laughs> so you, we just, we, we never want to distance ourselves. Beverly, we've got a couple of moments um, left, but I'd, I'd love you to sort of continue that thread of what, I, because you are very optimistic in the book. You start with optimism, you end with optimism um, and, and proactivity. So if you could extend um, Robin's message, that would be great. Well, let me say a word about optimism, which is to say I am an optimist by nature, but I also call myself a professional optimist. And what I mean by that is hope is necessary for change. If we didn't have hope, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So it is important to always hold a vision of the possibility of change. And I think that possibility becomes more real when each of us begins to think about our own spheres of influence. Who do I influence and how? You certainly have to start with yourself. You, you know, whether that's looking at your own behavior, looking at the question that Robin just asked, how am I manifesting racism in my life? You know, how are my institutions, my school, my workplace, my place of employment, you know, my church, my house of worship, my uh, neighborhood association, you know, where do I have influence and how is racism manifesting here? Who's included? Who's being left out? How do I know? I've been asking those questions. And when I get the answers, what do I do with that information? Um, do I start talking to other people about what we can do to shift the dynamic that I've just started to observe and document? Each of us has a sphere of influence. Some of us have a bigger sphere than others, but we all have a sphere of influence. And as I close out my book, one of the things I ask each of us as readers, people who are reading that information, to ask, what's my sphere of influence and how am I using it? to bring about that change. As I said, time has gone by so fast, could easily um, talk to you both all evening here, um, but it's the beginning of your day, I think, um, or, or closer to that where you are. But I just thank you to everyone so much for signing in. Thanks for your perceptive questions. Um, and Robin and Beverly, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Robin D'Angelo and Beverly Daniel Tatum and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Luke Naylor-Perro and edited by John Doughty. Next week, Fatima Bhutto asks Noam Chomsky about the climate crisis and the future of life on Earth. Until then, thanks for listening.